everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Behold! Did I get your attention? Some of you are saying, Pastor, not only did you get my attention, I need a clean pair of pants. <laughs> Amen? What's funny is that that is actually the same way that Matthew begins his retelling of the strange events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And it's only because I think that we've become so familiar with the Christmas story that we oftentimes just pass by or quickly skim over this dramatic monologue that Matthew opens his Christmas story with. In fact, if we were to read Matthew 2, 1, 2 verse 1, more appropriately, it might read like this. Now, after Jesus, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the king? Where, is, where has been born the king of the Jews? And in essence, Matthew is saying this, hey, wake up, pay attention. What I'm about to say is important, and you don't want to miss this. It's going to be different than what you probably have expected in the past. And as we hear Matthew say these words, it should stop us for just a moment at least to ask an important question. What is it specifically that the author of this gospel is clamoring about here? What is it that he's trying to draw our attention to in this moment? After all, don't the wise men come every time around this come every year around this time? What's the big deal that Matthew is talking about? And so for us to understand specifically why the author of the Gospel of Matthew is literally shouting at us from the pages of his gospel, we need to first begin to understand why he wrote his book in the first place. You see, Jesus did a lot of incredible things and said some astounding things during his 30-plus years here on earth. And Matthew, as one of the 12 disciples, had front-row seats to be able to witness firsthand all these incredible things that Jesus did. But Matthew didn't write his gospel because he wanted to give some written record to the world for all these mind-blowing magic tricks that Jesus did. He didn't have a friend of him say, hey, I've got a buddy that can pull a quarter out of his ear. And Matthew said, oh, no, no, check this out. You got to see what Jesus did. Matthew wrote his gospel because he's driving at something much, much deeper. Specifically, Matthew penned his gospel to demonstrate how this Jesus was both the continuation and the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God in Israel. You see, throughout Israel's long history, in the pages of the Old Testament, there were godly men, men of God, who were called both priests and prophets, who foretold about the arrival of this Messiah. And they said that this messianic figure would not only deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage, but that he would also 
be someone who would eternally rule and reign over all the nations. And like a single thread that is woven throughout a tapestry, Matthew so too weaves his belief or his idea that Jesus is and was the promised and long-expected Messiah. And one of the ways that Matthew makes his case for identifying Jesus as the Messiah is by looking backwards at the Old Testament, specifically the prophecies about this coming Messiah, and then pointing to the life of Christ and seeing this is how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. It's an incredibly powerful and compelling argument that Matthew chooses to employ in his gospel. In fact, there was a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner who counted the probability of one person fulfilling just a handful of those prophecies. And Mr. Stoner concluded that the chance of a single man fulfilling just 48, just 48 of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah was a chance of one in 10 times 157. For those of you who are visual, that is one with 157 different zeros behind it. However, biblical scholars agree that it wasn't just 48 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It was more in the neighborhood of 300 and 24 Old Testament prophecies that the coming of Christ fulfilled. And so if that first number wasn't amazing enough, the fact that Jesus fulfilled 324 prophecies is a number that's too incomprehensible for my mind. And Matthew, like a skilled attorney, points to these things as evidence to build his case that the man Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And that is the overarching premise that he builds for his book. And so now we can come back to the behold. Because Matthew, as we understand, it is not, it's a, it's the overarching narrative is that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the coming King. We begin to get a deeper sense that the Christmas story, the nativity story, is more than just a set of porcelain figures that we dust off once a year to set on the mantle of our fireplace. Indeed, the Christmas story, the nativity story, is the true story of God coming down from heaven in human flesh. It's the invasion of the king of kings into enemy-held territory to rightfully take back his position as deliverer and ruler of all mankind. Church, the Christmas story, it's the gospel message. It's the gospel message. And if you understand the gospel, you understand that it demands a response from you and from me. Because you cannot listen to the claims that Matthew makes about this man Jesus you cannot witness the claims that Jesus makes about himself or the entire Bible makes about this man and simply walk away and ignore what he said. The gospel demands a response. 
And so when Matthew declares in his opening monologue, behold, he's pleading for his audience to desperately pay attention to how the world is responding in that moment to the incredible news of the Messiah's arrival in Bethlehem. So let's continue our story and witness with Matthew how first century Palestine recognized the lordship of Jesus 2,000 years ago. In verse 3, it says this, that when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. And then it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and worship him too. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw Mary with his mother, or the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let me ask you this morning, church, did you behold? Were you filled with an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder as we listen to Matthew described how the watching world is reacting to the heralding of Christ arriving on the scene? If you're like me, probably not. As we've already said, the Christmas story is one of those stories that we've become so familiar with that in a lot of ways, we've actually neutered some of its power in our hearts and in our minds. We simply just receive it as another story during this time of year. But we should be surprised, church. We should be surprised. So I want to invite you for just a moment this morning to pause. Take a breath. Forget about shopping Amazon and Don's blingy shoes. I want us to pause for just a moment and behold again the very differing responses that Matthew describes to the Lordship of Jesus. And I believe that if we pause for just a moment, as Matthew is imploring us to do from the pages of his gospel, we will find information there that not only challenges us, but is surprising as well. Because as we behold this story, the very first person that Matthew tells us to behold is King Herod. And it says that as Herod gets news about Jesus' arrival, he is troubled by the announcement of a rival king in his kingdom. And this uh, Herod, history tells us, is Herod the Great. And you can't mention his name without also associating with him political and moral scandal. Sounds a lot like today, right? 
But, more, but Herod was one of those people who came into power largely through the use of his own power and the Roman forces and by crushing any who stood in opposition to him. In fact, his fragility as a leader was so, he was so fragile as a leader that his rule, that his reign, that his power was something that he worried about losing intensely. And so he did whatever it took to guard that power. In fact, historians will tell us that as Herod got older and his paranoia of losing his control over his kingdom became more and more intense and grew to astounding heights, in order to protect his throne, he actually brutally murdered his closest associates, his wife, and his, at least two of his sons. And so it was later bitterly said about Herod that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, just stop for a minute and think about if that was written on your headstone when you die. Here lies Bill. It was safer to be his pig than his son. Not exactly flattering words about this great Herod. And so when we look at the text and we see the word behold, this idea of look and be surprised, this is important. Because Matthew is saying that Herod somehow got wind of the fact that these wise men were going throughout Jerusalem inquiring about some, uh, a child that had been born king of the Jews. Think about that for a second. Born king. This was not a child who was destined to grow up and one day become king. They were saying this child was born king. And if you are someone like Herod, who is so desperately trying to cling to power, the notion that there is a rival king who may have greater claim to the throne than you do, that is enough to shake the very foundations of your heart. Enough to throw you into a riot to try and protect and cling to what you so desperately hold. Because for Herod, he can't tolerate the thought of another king being paid homage to in his kingdom. And that's why Matthew tells us that his heart was troubled. It means literally in turmoil or deeply disturbed. The text goes on to say that in fact all of Jerusalem was disturbed by this news. Quite simply, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. If Herod wasn't happy, the rest of the kingdom wasn't going to be happy. The Jewish people knew that this man was a little unhinged and that they feared a reaction from him, a violent retaliation that news of a rival king entering the kingdom might evoke from Herod. And if you know the Christmas story, we know that this was not far off because it was Herod himself who decreed that all the firstborn boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, were murdered, all in a desperate attempt to cling to the power of his throne. So when we behold this story in Matthew, we find this powerful king who had all of Rome's forces at his disposal, literally brought to his knees in terror by the prospect of a helpless baby. Shocking. It's shocking. We see a man who, in Herod, was so determined to cling to that which he possessed, so desperate to not lose control over his situation, that he was willing to do whatever it took, including stooping to murdering innocent children, 
so as not to have to bow his knee and surrender to King Jesus. Herod responds to the lordship of Christ with fear of loss and hostility to try and maintain control. But it's interesting. Herod isn't the only response that Matthew implores us to behold from the text, is it? The primary characters in this text are the mysterious magi from the east who have come to Jerusalem at this time to worship King Jesus. And their presence in the city was indeed something that was shocking to behold. Now, the magi are one of those characters in the Bible that are very oftentimes mysterious and misunderstood. And so when we look at the classic Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, it's a great song. It's a fantastic song. In fact, one of my favorite versions of that is from the Bare Naked Ladies and uh, Sarah McLaughlin, if that's not too sacrilegious to say. And I don't want to play the spoiler here, but they weren't actually kings. They were actually pagan astrologers, not far from what we may consider as wizards and witches in our day. It's as if Gandalf and Dumbledore are showing up to the nativity scene to offer their praise to Jesus. Think about that nativity scene for a moment, <laughs> sitting on your fireplace mantle. These magi, they're not respected kings. They are specialists in the supernatural, experts in astrology and magic. In fact, magi is where we get our English word, magic. They are blatant violators of the Old Testament law, and they are all coming to worship King Jesus. And so when Matthew says to his readers, behold, he's saying, behold, here come the magi, here come the astrologers, here come the sorcerers, here comes the pagans, the Gentiles, the sinners, and they're all coming to worship Jesus. Don't miss the shock of these Jewishly uncouth men coming to worship the king. And so we three kings of Orient aren't actually kings. But they are worshipers of Jesus, the true king, the king of all kings. And even though these magi wizards weren't actually technically kings, there is a way that they point to the kings of all nations. In fact, sinners of all nations who will come to worship Jesus. You see, in Matthew 2.11, Matthew provides an important connection between these astrologers and a prophetic verse from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Now remember, Matthew is using the Old Testament to reinforce why Jesus is Messiah. And in verse 11, he says this, And going into the house, they, the Magi, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and it says, they fell down on the ground and worship him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And the main connection that Matthew is trying to draw our attention to in this moment is a prophecy from the Isaiah um, chapter 60, where the prophet Isaiah prophesizes that kings and nations will come to worship Israel's king. Isaiah 60, verse 3, reads this. Nations, you shall come, nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sun shall come from afar. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring what? Gold and frankincense and bring good news and praises of the Lord. Church, Christ is not only the king of Israel, he is king of all nations. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And kings are coming to him, presenting to him the very best of their cultural products and practices, their resources and offering gold and frankincense and myrrh. And that was only the beginning. And these astrologers, these magi wizards from afar, unlike Herod, rightly recognized the lordship of Jesus in that moment. And Matthew says that they fell on their face before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they offered him the very best that they had to give. Two very differing responses to the lordship of Jesus. And as we already said, the Christmas story presents us with the gospel, and the gospel demands a response. And as we survey and behold Matthew's account of the events surrounding Jesus' birth, we see these two very differing responses. We see Herod, who responds out of fear of loss and hostility to maintain control. And then the mysterious magi, who come with humility and sacrifice. And so the driving question this morning is this, church. Which one are you? Which one are you? The Christmas story calls us all to respond to Jesus one way or another. Which one are you? Personally speaking, I can think of no better way to perhaps illustrate this idea than by the office. For those of you who don't know or perhaps have never seen, the office is quite literally the greatest TV show ever to grace our television screens. And I might be a little obsessed and biased. I'm okay with admitting that. It is indeed my guilty pleasure. I've watched all nine seasons of The Office more times than I can even keep count of at this point. It is to me what Seinfeld and Friends is to other people. And one of my favorite episodes are the Christmas episodes of The Office. Specifically, the very first Christmas episode from season two. And in that episode, if you've ever seen it, the office is buzzing with excitement over a secret Santa exchange that is happening. And the office manager, Michael Scott, played by the talented Steve Carell, is practically bursting at the scenes to give his gift to the office intern, which is a $400 iPod. Hello, 2005. And that, of course, went significantly above and beyond the $20 limit that they had set in the office. And Michael's holiday cheer is almost immediately deflated when he opens his secret Santa gift and finds that he's been given a homemade oven mitt. (laughs) Incensed by his belief that Christmas presents and the value of the Christmas present that is given is the best way to show someone how you care about them, He famously responds, so Phyllis is telling me she cares about me a homemade oven's mitt worth. (laughs) Michael's response to the secret Santa gift is comedy gold. It's fantastic. But it highlights 
a deeper spiritual truth that is hinted at in the text of Matthew. And that truth is this. How I appraise the lordship of Jesus in my life will determine what I am willing to give back to him as king. If I esteem lowly Jesus' lordship as king of kings and lord and lord of my life, then I'm much more likely to offer him the paltry scraps of my life rather than lavish on him the very best that I have to offer. Instead of giving Jesus the $400 iPod, I hand him the crudely made potholder and say, Jesus, I care about you, a homemade oven's mitt worth. Don't let anybody ever tell you the office isn't theologically rich material. <laughs> but drawing that connection even further back into our story from Matthew's text in uh, chapter 2. Church, I can tell you this morning that when it comes to surrendering control, complete control of my life to Jesus, oftentimes my response more closely resembles that of Herod than that of the Magi. Not because I outright reject and refuse the rulership and kingship of Jesus in my life as, G as Herod did, but more so because I falsely believe that there are areas in my life that I can pick and choose which Jesus can have rule over. Jesus, you can have this area, but not that. I can hold on to this, Jesus, but you can be king of that. And it all stems from this desire deep inside of me to exercise dominion over areas of my life, especially those areas of life that bring pleasure, control, or power. And just like Herod, when those areas are threatened by the kingship of Jesus, I do everything within my power to protect those sinful desires, those attitudes and life patterns. When Jesus comes into my life and confronts me on those areas, the very throne of my heart shakes. And at times, church, the truth is I struggle to give control over to Jesus. Can anyone else relate to that this morning? Are there areas in your life where you're resisting surrendering control to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Perhaps for you, there's you're resisting giving surrender over to Jesus in your present circumstances because you believed or made a deal with yourself a long time ago that, that by this point in my life, I'm going to be so much further ahead. Are you resisting surrendering control in a season of singleness because you fear that you will always be alone? Are you resisting giving control or surrender over to Jesus in areas of faith because you're afraid that you're going to fail or you're going to step into the unknown? Are you resisting surrendering control to Jesus because there's a secret sin in your life that you're afraid of what other people might think if they found out or knew what you were struggling with? Or perhaps that God might not love you. The truth is this morning, church, obviously we could go through any number of things. We could go through a list of different ways in which the areas in which we withhold our surrender from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But the truth is this this morning. Any area that we bow down to, any area in our lives that we sacrifice or make allegiance to, 
whether it be ourselves, whether it be somebody else, an attitude, or a material possession. Whatever that thing is, that is our king. And just like Herod, we refuse the rule of Jesus in our lives for something that will ultimately only end up destroying and ruining us. In this duality of worship that so many of us oftentimes exist in, myself included, where we try to seek and appease myself as king and Jesus as king at the same time is a wretched place to exist. Because even Jesus himself said this in Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. The Christmas story calls us all to respond to Jesus in one way or another. Either we respond to his lordship as Herod did with fear and hostility, or we follow the path of the Magi who responded in humility and sacrifice. But church, make no mistake, you can't have it both ways. Jesus, Jesus is not Burger King. You can't have it your way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus alone calls to be king of our lives. And if we don't make that decision, one will eventually overrule the other. You can't serve one and not cast away the other. So the question for us this morning then is, how do we more fully respond like the Magi? What practical step can we take this morning as we walk out of here to begin to surrender more and more of our lives over to the kingship and lordship of Jesus? I would submit to you this morning, at least for our discussion today, that the answer is found in a common sports analogy. And I'm actually going to have to have you think backwards with me for just a moment, so put on your thinking caps, okay? Remember 10 years ago, it's a long time ago, some of you were just babies, not even born at that point. There was a man by the name of Andrew Luck, and Andrew Luck was a redshirt quarterback at Stanford University, and he would have been the number one pick in the draft had he declared himself eligible in his junior season after he threw and completed 70% of his passes, threw for over 3,000 yards, 32 touchdowns, and only 8 interceptions. But the value of Andrew Luck in the mind of many was more than just numbers. He was a man who stood at an opposing six foot four. He had a rocket for an arm. And many said that at 22 years of age, he possessed a knowledge of the game that well exceeded his age. And it was for this reason that many NFL executives and NFL fans alike said that Andrew Luck was a surefire, guaranteed, first ballot Hall of Famer before he even threw a pass in the NFL. And it began this whole movement called Suck for Luck. Nobody is really sure of where this phrase began, but it quickly became a popular Twitter handle and hashtag for terrible NFL t- fans of ter- terrible NFL teams all across the country as they were imploring their team to tank on the season in order to have a shot, just a chance to take that coveted 
first-round pick and draft Andrew Luck as their first-round quarterback. You see, the fans understood that sometimes in sports you need to lose in order to win. And it's interesting that as you go back and look at Jesus' teachings, he had his own kind of suck-for-luck moments as he was speaking to his audience. And in Matthew 16.25, Jesus says this, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. You see, similar to the Andrew Luck sweepstakes in 2011, Jesus is saying to all who would follow after me, you have to be willing to lose in order to win. You have to be willing to surrender the control of your life to me in order to gain all the promises and riches that are available through Christ alone. And this is so contrary to our stubborn human nature, isn't it? We don't like the idea of losing. But when we lose to win, we save ourselves from all the unnecessary pain, all the unnecessary stress, all the unnecessary drama that God does not intend for us to go through. When we surrender our lives wholly to the Lordship of Jesus, that is when Jesus can do exceedingly more than we ever hope for and imagine in the circumstances and situations of our life. Because think about it this way, church. The Bible says that Jesus knew you. Jesus knew each of you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. The Bible says that Jesus knows the end before the beginning. The Bible says that he is the one, the true ruler and authority of the universe, not just our world, but over all creation. And when I understand that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, why would I not willingly lay down my life, lose my life and surrender to him in order that I may gain the one who knows me more than anyone will ever know me and who loves me more deeply than anyone could ever love me without thought or precondition? It seems like a no-brainer, right? seems like a deal that it would be stupid to turn down, but then why do we so often respond like Herod did when it comes to surrendering control? The answer is obvious. It's our sin. Our sin. It's our broken, sinful nature that causes me, that causes Jason, that causes each of us to respond to the lordship or the prospect of Jesus' lordship in our lives with fear and hostility. And the reason is, is that I am powerless in and of myself to surrender control over to the Lord. There may be times when I can do it for a day, for a couple weeks, or even a couple of months on end, but left to my own devices, I am powerless to surrender my life fully to Jesus. And that's why I need Jesus' help to be able to surrender all to Him. And one of the ways that I found church one of the ways that I've found in my own life to be able to begin practicing losing to win in my relationship with Jesus is by praying a simple prayer of surrender. My prayer is based largely on Luke 10.27, which says this, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
And so in response to Jesus' words, I try to pray this prayer. And I say try because I don't do it every day, but I try every day to begin my day with prayer. And it's very simply this. Jesus, I give you my heart today. The seat of my soul and emotions, I invite you to come, Lord. Please, Jesus, come and be king and reign over my heart. Jesus, I give you my mind today. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, may my thoughts about you, myself, and others be true according to your word. And last but not least, Jesus, I give you my body. I ask that you give me the strength that I may honor you with my actions. Amen. It's a simple prayer. And you can choose to use that prayer for yourself word for word as you walk out of here or very simply just as an outline for how you want to communicate to Jesus. It's not about the words. It, as with all things in our Christian faith, is about the heart behind it. It's about recognizing that there are times in my life when I struggle to bow down before the the nativity of Jesus to give him all. And instead of trying to do it all on my own strength, instead of trying to cling more desperately to control of my life, I turn my faith to the one who is capable of helping me lose to win. Church, the Christmas season calls everyone to respond to Jesus one way or another. As we behold him this holiday season, may we not respond to the lordship of Jesus as Herod did with fear and hostility. But instead, may we go from this place today like the Magi who responded to Jesus by humbly bowing before him and saying, Lord, it all belongs to you. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.